Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. For our discussion today, we have with us Ruby Gail Fallow, Aaron Allen, and Andrew Snyder talking about their edited volume, Honk, a Street Band Renaissance of Music and Activism, published by Rutledge in 2020. Honk, a street band renaissance of music and activism, explores a fast-growing and transnational movement of street bands, particularly brass and percussion ensembles, and examines how this exciting phenomenon mobilizes communities to reimagine public spaces, protest injustice, and assert their activism. Through the joy of participatory music-making, Honk bands foster active musical engagement in street protest while encouraging grassroots organization representing a manifestation of cultural activity that exists at the intersections of community, activism, and music. This collection of 20 essays considers the parallels between the diversity of these movements and the diversity of the musical repertoire these bands play and share. Now for a little bit more about our guest, Ruby Garofalo is a member of the organizing committee for the Somerville Honk Festival and a longtime scholar of popular music studies. Is Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Aaron T. Allen is a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at Ohio State University with a dissertation focused on the honk community in the United States. She is an ethnomusicologist who plays trumpet with Chicago's environmental encroachment. Finally, Andrew Snyder received his PhD in ethnomusicology at the University of California, Berkeley in 2018 with a dissertation about brass bands in Rio de Janeiro. He is an ethnomusicologist who plays trumpet and co-founded San Francisco's Mission Delirium. And this month, he began a research postdoc at the Ethnomusicology Institute at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. So, Rebe, Aaron, and Andrew, thank you all so much for joining us on this episode of New Books and Celebration Studies. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you. Excellent. All right. So, going to our first question, before we start talking about the book itself, let's start with Rebe with this question. Um, Can you explain what Honk is to our listeners? And following all of y'all, uh, talk about your relationships to its various manifestations. So what is your relationship to it as performers and researchers? Let me give a tiny bit of history to say where Honk started. Um, I play snare drum in the, ho- in the host band for the Honk Festival, which is the Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society Brass Band. Second Line started back in 2003 as a pickup band protesting the buildup to the war in Iraq. They enjoyed playing these demonstrations so much, they decided to be a band and keep right on doing that. And about two, three years into that process, um, they started wondering how many other bands like us are there and uh, decided to put out a call. And that first year, back in 2006 now, um, about a dozen bands answered the call and the Honk Festival was born. About a dozen bands descended on 
Davis Square in Somerville, Mass., and did two, three days worth of um, activist music, activist music making, and band fun in the streets. Um, and over time, it just caught fire. Um, the thing doubled in size within two years, and by 2020, there were 22 honk festivals um, all over the world. And that brings us up to now. Yeah, so my relationship to Honk began uh, around 2013. Um, I'd actually heard about the festival from a friend who lived in Boston at the time. Um, and as a, as a trumpet player myself, I was sort of immediately intrigued by the social and political goals of, um, of the festival and, and of what seemed to be a movement, um, a musical movement at the time. Um, particularly, you know, just through how, how does one... Uh, you know, enact these sort of political goals through um, primarily a type of ensemble and types of music that don't necessarily always have words. Um, so the first uh, Honk Festival I went to was sort of as a random audience member at the Honk Fest in New York City. Um, and I, I really didn't know anybody at that point, but I happened to be in the region for a conference um, and I decided to check it out after hearing about it from my friend. And after that, I was sort of pretty thoroughly convinced um, that I wanted to write my, my PhD dissertation um, about the US context of, of the honk movement. So the first festival I went to as a researcher was Honk Texas in 2015. Um, and it was sort of at that point that I began playing my trumpet with, um, with Environmental Encroachment, which is a band based in Chicago that's been uh, going to honk festivals um, since the very first Honk Festival in 2006. Um, and then since then, I've sort of played with uh, a number of other bands as well. Clamor and Lace, Noise Brigade from Chicago, Dead Music Capital Band from Austin, Black Sheep Ensemble from Atlanta, and a handful of various sort of pickup honk bands, both in the US and in uh, and the festival in Wollongong, Australia. So um, yeah. <laughs> Very cool, Andrew. Yeah, so Honk, kept on finding me or I found it in uh, some unexpected places that now that I know more about the whole network make complete sense. Um, but I was a music major at Reed College uh, in Portland. And uh, right about the time that the festival was getting started, um, there was a band that came to our yearly end of the year party that was uh, basic, one of the most expected and fun things that happened. Uh, during the week, this sort of weekend long party, and that was uh, March 4th marching band. Um, and I just had no context for this band. They came out of nowhere. There was this circusy, carnivalesque, um, really professional, uh, amazing band. Um, and I had played trumpet, but what had focused more as a music major on guitar and piano. Um, so I would kind of left the trumpet and, and continued to not play the trumpet until later. In 2011, I started going to the Occupy. Uh, Wall Street protests as a graduate student in ethnomusicology at UC Berkeley, um, having moved to the Bay Area, going to Occupy Wall Street. And there was a band there called the Brass Liberation Orchestra that was, I kept finding in basically everywhere I went during Occupy, um, really mobilizing the protests uh, and creating um, a really different kind of space than some of the uh, more intense um, and violent aspects uh, that that were also in the protests on um, the more celebratory um, but equally radical uh, dimension of it. 
And I kind of randomly uh, asked if I could play with them, even though I hadn't been playing trumpet, picked up my trumpet. And uh, as I sort of started to, uh, as I joined that band and became more aware of the larger network, um, was, became interested in researching about it. That year we went, um, 2012, we went to the uh, Honk Festival for my first time in, in Boston, Somerville. Um, and it was kind of a revelation. From there, I learned the next year there was a Brazilian brass band uh, that had come up, Osirais, from Rio de Janeiro um, to the festival. And I was at that point trying to figure out my own dissertation project um, and kind of uh, followed them to an initial trip to Rio to find out what was going on there and discovered that there was this whole carnivalesque brass band scene that had been developing in parallel with honk so kind of based in the local carnival but they had already been playing very global repertoires which we'll talk about um thinking about participatory music uh in interesting ways and um and, and playing in protest so really kind of already practicing honk without uh without that term and then they ended up bringing the festival there. I was there for the first time uh, when that happened. So from there, I've been playing uh, trumpet in a, a variety of different bands. Um, and it's been kind of amazing to see all of this networking taking place. I think we've all seen that in an interesting way. Cool. Thank you all so much. Um, going on to our next question, I'll direct this to Aaron. How did the three of you come to meet? <laughs> um, so I first met Rebe, uh at the Crash Detroit Festival in, in 2015, I think. Um, Crash Detroit is, is sort of the, the name of the, the honk-like festival in, um, in Detroit. And I was already aware of his academic work on honk um, at that point, and I just sort of introduced myself to him as a PhD student who was uh, also endeavoring to kind of write about honk. Um, and at some point he told me, you know, there was the possibility to publish a book uh, about Honk and we just sort of kept talking from there. Um, and then Andrew, I first uh, heard about before meeting in person actually. Um, and I, I was told about Andrew through Mike Smith, who is the founder of Environmental Encroachment, the band that I played with, um, also called EE. Um, and EE had gone to the first Honk in, in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Um, where Andrew was at the time still, you know, finishing up his PhD research. And so it was actually Mike Smith, I think, who first put us in touch. Um, and we corresponded through email at first and then met in person um, a year or two later, I want to say, when he came to Honk in Somerville with the Brass Liberation Orchestra. Um, and he had also, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, he had also been in touch with Phoebe. Um, and I think it was sort of at a honk after party, maybe in Somerville, when the three of us sort of got to, to seriously talking about putting this book together and thinking who we might invite to, to uh, submit chapters and, and things like that. Great. Thank you. There's definitely, it sounds like a sense of community in these circles. Um, and actually that leads very well to the next question that I have, you know, what was this process of compiling, you know, this volume, like after the three of you kind of got connected, Andrew, um, if you want to take this one. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would love to hear uh, others perspective, but um, you know, I think in the end it, it was uh, as like friendly and uh, productive and collaborative as uh, I could have imagined and, um, and successful. Starting from the beginning, I mean, I 
was, you know, to moving towards the end of uh, my PhD, had not really started publishing anything and was not convinced necessarily that this was all going to come together as it did. Um, I was really glad to be working, uh, especially, I mean, Vivi has a lot of experience publishing and, and publishing um, edited volumes uh, in particular. So working uh, collaboratively with other people and working with contributors. And um, so, so that was really helpful to have, to have that experience um, to rely on. But, um, you know, I, I think I went in thinking, well, we'll give it a shot and we'll see what happens if it crashes and burns. That's fine, but it really didn't. Um, and we, we all, that first meeting that Aaron talked about, uh, we came, came up with a list of names of people that just kept on growing and, you know, the people from not just the U.S., but uh, from around the world. Uh, the, the book really has uh, an international dimension that reflects the, the participants of the festival. And, um, and we just started emailing them and enough of them were interested uh, that uh, it was pretty clear that we would have something um, to, to work with. Uh, Rivi also had a connection with the publisher at Village, so we can um, talk about how how this all developed uh, a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I would say it was a really like fun, productive process. Yeah, and Rivi and Aaron, I don't know if y'all also have thoughts about the process. Yeah, I I had uh, I had done some academic writing on Honk already uh, before meeting the two people who actually did the work here. Um, and um, as you know, I, did a, I did a piece for the International uh, Journal of Community Music on honk pedagogy, um, because honk really is a, a different kind of animal in terms of the way people conceive about teaching and learning music, in addition to all the political work associated with it. And we had done, our band had done workshops in the public schools for a number of years at that point where um, we would take kids and within two hours, we would teach them a song, even if they had never played, uh, never played that song before, these kids marching down the hall, playing a song that they had learned that day. And that never happens in a music class. It would take you three months to get to that point in a beginning music class. And I just thought, there's a book here. And having, I was re, had been retired for about five or six years by then. And I thought, there's a book here and I'm not going to write it. Um, but I thought a collaborative effort might be the way. And then I met Aaron and after, after meeting Aaron, I became aware of, you know, there's all of these young scholars doing PhDs on honk. Um, and this is, this is, you know, a tailor-made audience. Um, and then Andrew came into the picture and we seemed to just click right from the beginning. Um, and I had done a workshop a couple of years earlier at a, uh, a conference on community music in Cambridge. Um, where we did a similar workshop where we had people at the conference marching down the hall playing music within an hour. And one of those people happened to be the editor at Rutledge who had been after me to write a book on honk. And so this, this sort of just fell into place nicely. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was very much an organic uh, process for all of us and sort of um, in many ways, like us working together um, sort of mirrors the way that a lot of honk bands organize themselves in terms of like just horizontal leadership and um, everybody kind of participates in, um, contributes, you know, according to their strengths. And that sort of feels very much like how this book kind of came together. It was a delightful process. <laughs> I love that. That's so perfect on, on the nose. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so let's shift let gears also, now to, oh, go ahead, Rapey. If I might, that I have never said this about a collaborative project writing a book before. <laughs> this is a first. Yes, it does seem like there's some good collegiality um, that dr- drove this, which is always good. Um, great. So now that we have some contacts for our listeners, um, let's dive into the book. So um, we'll kind of go based around the book's organizations, the organization, the five general parts. And looking at part one, the chapters in that section, quote, show the histories and scope of the honk movement and the impossibility of understanding the expanding network as simply beginning in Somerville, Massachusetts in 2006, end quote. So directing this at Rebe, uh, how would you say the chapters in this first part expand the scope of Honk's history? Well, it, it, um, it expands it both going back in time to the origins of brass um, and forward in time to the expansion of Honk well beyond the original festival and even beyond the current festivals that exist to explore new areas where festivals might crop up in which, and in many of those instances they have. Um, I got really fascinated with the history of brass because, you know, for those of us participating in this activist movement, you know, brass instruments are tools of liberation Uh, except if you study our history, um, we all have roots in military applications um, because brass bands really started as, you know, military signal devices. Um, And that is the history of brass. And there's, there's a really, it's a really fascinating story that is pretty much the same all over the world, which is that in many instances, people's first association with a brass band is an invading colonial army. Um, and what typically happens is at war's end and when armies leave, they often leave their brass instruments and local populations take up these instruments and they indigenize their use. They, they put these instruments to uses that were never envisioned by the military, and in many cases, turn the military model on its head and use these as tools for local cultural development and, in many cases, liberation. Um, and it's that spirit of honk that I think um, finds its way into the way the festivals are organized. Um, but it's important for us to also know where we came from. Um, that said, we have continued with this sort of liberatory model of participatory music learning and music making. Um, and the festivals have more or less 
followed along in that model, although I have to say activism is probably the most controversial term in the honk movement. Um, and people have very different definitions of what it means. Um, but people talk about the history of it. I mean, and it has developed really nicely from our point of view. Our festival doubled in size within two years. Um, and we faced a, a crucial choice point about three or four years into the festival, at which time we were in danger of becoming victims of our own success. We were growing at a rate that was unsustainable in the place where we were hosting the festival. And because we didn't want to lose our roots in Davis Square, we decided that we did not want our local festival to grow um, to the point where we would outgrow Davis Square. And so we made the very strategic decision that the way we wanted this festival to expand was to encourage people to do similar festivals um, wherever they called home. Um, and that's what bands did. Bands came to the Honk Festival in Somerville sufficiently excited by the experience they had there that they went back home and organized their own festivals. And of course, those festivals are tailored to their own local conditions. So they're not, um, they're not identical to Honk and Somerville, but there are a number of principles that we hold dear together. Um, things like it being a non-traditional festival, a non-commercial festival, a festival where there's very little separation between artist and audience, uh, etc. And, and then in the book, we expanded beyond that and looked to a couple of places like Japan and Africa, where there were not yet honk festivals, but definitely and music scene that sort of lent itself to that kind of development. Um, and we found that, you know, uh, people that we met through that device, um, became really kindred spirits and fellow travelers in, in the journey that we are all on. And one of the things that proved very interesting was when um, a couple of uh, folks from Japan and Africa who contributed chapters to the book also got bands from those areas to contribute to the venture that we called Honk United this year. So, you know, in many ways, the publication of the book has spurred the development of expanding Honk into two other continents where we had not existed before. That's really cool, actually, that a book can have that kind of impact. Yeah. And we'll definitely talk more um, in a little bit about that this year's Honk Festival, for sure. Um, great. So going on to the next section, part two. Um, in this section, the contributors discuss the diverse nature of the repertoires and other performance choices of some of these honk bands. Uh, directing this to Andrew here, can you talk about some of the points these chapters make regarding those choices? Yeah, I mean, first I'll say that the way we organized uh, the book, the book's chapters, was it was one of the last things we did, and um, in some sense was uh, arbitrary. There were other, there could be other ways to um, put all of this together, uh, and this was one uh, section that I think we all found. Uh, a bit hard to fit and know how to put how to put together. I think of it. This section is kind of uh, being focused on what and how bands play that are part of the um, 
of the network. And so by that, I mean repertoire, like what musical uh, uh, genres do they draw on? What songs, how do they travel? Um, and, and how, um, especially around pedagogy, the question of um, multi-level ensembles, a multi-level movement, um, and also bands that aren't multi-level, bands that are specifically uh, oriented towards as education projects for newcomers uh, to bands that are fully professional. And one of the bands that uh, just started, uh, that, that was featured in the Honk United Virtual Festival is Gonga Bay Brastan, which is a world famous touring band from Benin. Um, so there's a lot of rhetoric around Honk about being a sort of multi-level festival. Uh, and and encouraging uh, multi-level musical engagement. But from my perspective, there's kind of every imaginable kind of, um, of mix of musical backgrounds in different kinds of ensembles that you could think of from um, the very beginning to very professional. Uh, so, so just on repertoire, um, one of the one of the things I think that makes uh, honk distinct is kind of an embrace of a musically eclectic, uh, voracious uh, appetite for musical resources from all over the world. I think Rebe gave kind of this perspective of um, of the kind of long history of brass uh, as a sort of colonizing force that was uh, in many cases indigenous, indigenized, um, and new ensembles came in new repertoires came into being, so really a kind of global uh, ensemble. And Honk is really drawn on that global history. So if you look on the About uh, uh, Honk uh, on, the, on the website, it lists uh, Balkan music, New Orleans Second Line, um, Indian brass band music, uh, Romani music, um, Brazilian frevo, uh, all kinds of musical resources, right? So there's not, Honk is not, a style of music. It's more, could be more defined by uh, the ensemble, uh, the brass and drum mobility uh, that, that is so, um, so much a part of it, right? Honk ensembles generally don't have amplification, though some of them use that in interesting ways. Um, they're really kind of devoted to uh, the ensemble of brass and percussion um, in general. But with beyond, but within that uh, stricture, there's all kinds of musical genres. So the, the chapter that I wrote there was really looking at um, the tension that develops in uh, a movement that is um, overall whiter and middle class. And that has manifestations, if you, even in the, the research that I did in Brazil, the honk movement in Brazil, is wider and middle class, uh, more middle class than a lot of the scenes that you would find in Rio de Janeiro. Um, it's very internationally minded, it's a highly educated movement. Um, so uh, the, there is an element of honk being a uh, very much a culture of the left, but a culture of the sort of educated middle class and often wider, right? Um, so that said, the movement I think wants to diversify uh, and the most important way is structural, right? Who's involved? How do we involve um, marginalized communities in the festival, uh, marginalized band members in individual bands? But one of the, the ways that it diversifies, uh, maybe more obviously, is through a repertoire. So I tried to talk about the tension of that building on my own experience as a composer and band leader 
um, and uh, and a ranger uh, in Mission Valerian um, in San Francisco, um, really showing how our band, which is a predominantly white band, playing uh, all of these different genres is in a kind of fundamental tension in a very di diverse city, sometimes uh, really celebrated as being in solidarity uh, by playing, say, uh, Latinx music genres in the, um, in the Latinx district of uh, the Mission District, where we started, uh, as well as many other genres, and other times uh, critiques of, uh, you know, having critiques of cultural appropriation. So there I'm just trying to uh, encourage uh, our community not to see this as kind of an either or question, either you're in solidarity uh, with marginalized communities by playing um, diverse musical repertoires, or this is some, an activity that is inherently off limits, but rather often both perspectives are true and uh, worth considering. Um, so kind of a both and perspective uh, that, I'm, that I'm trying to offer from our, uh, from our band's history. Uh, for the larger movement, but uh, the other chapters are are a little bit more better paired. Uh, they look at the honk, um, the the school of honk in Cambridge, which plays a wide diversity of genres and is a really a community education project that can grow into the hundreds of uh, people um, with widely differing skill levels playing together. Um, and the other chapter looks at a of bands in Rome uh, that really gets into the nitty ditty musicological details of how, um, of how the band is able to play uh, Sun Ra's avant-garde jazz piece, uh, Love in Outer Space, as a, with a multi-level ensemble and sort of really like transcribes in detail, what are people doing? How does, this, how does a multi-level uh, musical performance manifest itself? Um, so that's kind of how we, we brought that section together is thinking about what do the bands play and how do they play together. Great. And some of the points you were making about kind of the inclusion efforts, you know, thinking about diversity leads really well into the next part, you know, actually titled Inclusion Organization, um, where you all state, quote, that you try to show that inclusion is far from a simple concept and one that must account for the needs of marginalized communities, the mission of a particular project, and individual expression, end quotes. So going to Aaron for this question, how is that idea of inclusion complicated here? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. And again, sort of with just in general, um, for the organization of the sections of the book, um, like Andrew said, we could have uh, some of these chapters very easily put in multiple different um, places. Um, but inclusion is certainly a theme that kind of comes up over and over again um, within Honk. It's, it's sort of, there's, you know, um, one of the many sort of discourses within Honk is sort of this belief that that honk bands are organized in order to be inclusive um, in a number of ways, musically, politically, um, socially, um, and, and is meant to some, in some cases, offer kind of a, a contrast uh, with a culture of, of perhaps musical elitism or specialization and individualism. Um, so, you know, honk bands and the festivals themselves um, aim to be sort of as inclusionary as possible, um, since inclusion in many ways is sort of viewed as an important element of democracy, of community, um, as an important element for, uh, for social justice. 
Um, but facilitating um, inclusion within bands or within sort of the hunk community more broadly is not always so straightforward. Um, so the chapters in this section of the book kind of uh, attempt to critically engage with the various ways that bands attempt to be inclusive of a, of a wide variety of, of people, of um, political ideologies, again, on the left, but ne nevertheless, there is diversity in terms of uh, political ideology, as well as um, diversity in terms of kind of musical uh, abilities, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word, like Andrew was saying, there's, there's, um, you know, there's specialists, there are career uh, musicians who um, call themselves honk bands, and then there are also sort of beginning um, more sort of community, uh, self-proclaimed community bands within the honk world. And so, um, so these chapters kind of deal with, uh, you know, the, the sort of limitations and challenges and contradictions that can be associated with um, an attempt to sort of be inclusive of this sort of wide variety of people. Um, and a lot of bands in the honk world, uh, so for example, push back against the idea of hierarchical leadership and they explicitly attempt to organize themselves in a horizontal leaderless fashion um, in an effort to create an inclusive band structure um, that theor theoretically allows more people to participate in, in musical and other sort of decision-making processes of the band. Um, and by doing that, um, you know, that's meant to sort of model ideal democratic social organizations. So um, one of the chapters in this section kind of deals with this uh, concept of horizontal uh, leaderlessness in honk bands um, and you know, sort of shows how, diffi uh, how difficult collective decision-making and shared leadership can be in practice. Um, so even in leaderless bands, leaders often tend to emerge uh, still, even if they aren't named, um, you know, as such, as leaders. Uh, and this uh, can sort of sometimes produce or reproduce unintended or even problematic social dynamics. So um, that particular chapter is uh, kind of arguing that even if a band is theoretically open to anyone to join and everyone is invited to participate in things like leading rehearsals or organizing gigs um, and other sort of similar band-oriented uh, things, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will actually feel included or comfortable in the group. So horizontal and inclusive band structures kind of require active and ongoing effort to make sure that people aren't unintentionally excluded because of sort of lingering uh, racialized or gendered patterns of participation within the band. Um, and these sort of dynamics come up in some of the other chapters in this section of the book as well, um, which is why we felt that these chapters kind of went fairly well together. Um, in particular, gendered patterns of participation and inclusion are, are brought up in Becky Liebman's chapter. Uh, she talks about the brass band as sort of a historically male-dominated type of ensemble and, and sort of addresses uh, the ways that the hunk community attempts to organize itself such that um, women or gender non-binary musicians feel more included to participate in relatively safer spaces um, and have, have that space to kind of... Um, uh, you know, in some cases, this sort of means that all female or gender non-binary bands have been created as sort of a, um, an inclusionary space to sort of develop individual and collective agency and, um, and things like that. And then in, some, in the other two chapters in this section, you know, again, similar themes of, um, of these tensions uh, between 
um, inclusivity and exclusivity and how one might facilitate those through the structure of the bands um, come up. Uh, political inclusivity is talked about in one of the chapters and, and sort of, again, these kind of contradictions can arise um, when you have a band that is uh, sort of meant to be um, uh, inclusive of a wide variety of people, um, but sort of the paradox is that unintentionally sometimes the membership in the band kind of becomes more narrowly oriented around a, a, an explicit sort of political ideology. Um, and again, without sort of um, explicitly attending to these dynamics, it's possible that, you know, people that don't share those political ideologies might feel excluded and then leave the band. So um, it's, it's these sort of tensions that we talk about in these, um, in these chapters. And then also um, there's this tension running through these chapters between individuality and sort of uh, collectivity. Um, and so uh, in a number of ways, these authors kind of uh, talk about the value of inclusivity and political equality and social justice and the way that honk bands attempt to promote those communitarian values. Um, but then these authors sort of also talk about the value of individual political and musical agency within honk as well. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, there's an emphasis on individual expression um, in, in honk. Uh, you can see it through honk musicians, sort of creative individual costuming and sort of the prizing of solo improvisation work at times. Um, but that, that sort of emphasis on, on individuality um, sort of always takes place within this uh, group collectivity. And so, um, again, there's sort of this tension between individual agency and expression and group dynamics, which sort of sometimes renders uh, inclusivity as, as sometimes a, a rather complicated practice. Um, and that's kind of, you know, brought up in, in a variety of ways in these chapters. Great. Thank you, Erin. That definitely complicates that idea of inclusion for sure in that section. And honestly, a lot of the discussions in that section even bleed over into the next one to some extent. I can see how it would have been so tricky to kind of organize this book in so many different ways. Um, and going on to that, you know, a key word in both that section and this one is that word organization, right? Um, so in the next section, part four, the chapters explore Honk's relationship to quotes, commercialism, activism, political engagement, and ultimately transformative change, end quote. So directing this to Rebe, what are some of the debates discussed in this section? Oh, <laughs> um, as I said earlier, activism is probably the most controversial term in the honk community. Um, to date, the Somerville Festival is the only festival in the United States that uses the term activist in its title. Um, Although many of us would argue that the kinds of engagement that you see bands engaging in throughout the states um, can be considered some kind of activism. Um, just the very notion of reclaiming public space in the way honk festivals do. Um, honk festivals participate in public spaces in ways that other entities very seldom do. It's a, it's a statement about what kinds of sounds and behaviors are acceptable in public spaces um, and who owns public space and who gets to make use of that. 
So there's a sense in which there is a political dimension of reclaiming public space that can be considered activist. Um, and that then has to be problematized by asking the question, reclaiming public, public space for whom? Because one of the contradictions that we are sometimes painfully aware of is that um, when honk comes to town, we are considered very hip. We are considered very cutting edge. Um, and honk very often carries with it the kind of hipness um, that leads to gentrification of neighborhoods and the kind of gentrification that very often leads to the displacement of the original community of people that lived in those neighborhoods. And so when we say we're reclaiming public space, one of the things that is important is for us to pay attention to um, on whose behalf are we reclaiming public space and to what extent are we providing ways for the original inhabitants of neighborhoods to continue to participate in using the public spaces that are being reclaimed. And so, you know, it's a real contradiction and we try to manage that contradiction by doing things like um, performing for causes that support affordable housing, that support rent control, uh, that support eviction moratoria, um, things like that. Um, another area that is um, problematic in organizing an ongoing annual festival like Honk is um, the role of public entities and in particular police departments um, in, in, in getting things like permits, in providing crowd control. Um, you know, as we know from the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the role of police entities in, 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 in maintaining equity in public spaces is not always what we'd like it to be. Um, and yet, um, we have, for example, in Somerville, a parade that goes down Massachusetts Avenue, which is the main thoroughfare um, in Boston, in, in, in Somerville and Cambridge. Um, and that requires us to get police permits. Um, it requires police to do crowd control. Um, and there are, there have been many discussions about whether we should be trying to accomplish those same things without using that level of, of police control of our events. Um, should we be looking uh, to engage more with models of community policing? Should we rethink whether or not we want to get permits for the kind of work we do? Um, these are tensions that are difficult to manage. Um, thus far, we feel like, you know, we have been able to remain on the plus side of progressive action, um, but very often not, you know, not without compromise here and there. I mean, we are in touch with entities that in other circumstances we might be working on opposite sides of the fence with. Um, so there are things like that. There are, there are any number of bands, and this comes out in that section too, that do things like workshops in the public schools, like the ones I mentioned earlier. 
um, to many people that would be considered activist work. There are there are bands that play for community events, for community fundraisers, but don't do direct action political work. Well, are they activist bands or not? Um, certainly they are civically engaged in some way um, that's productive, um, and it depends very often on how you define activism and how far you feel that honk should be pushing the envelope. Um, and uh, we continue to have these debates, and hopefully we can clarify and manage these contradictions even better every year. Yes, that's a really good point and really interesting and, you know, intercommunal debate sounds like going on there. And I imagine this year in particular has probably raised that question back up. And we'll talk about that, you know, a little bit as well, our current moment. Um, and I also found your discussions about public space too are really interesting. And the next section talks about specific use of public space protest. Um, so directing this towards Aaron, what are some of the tactics and for what movements uh, discussed in this section? Um, yeah, so um, in this section, uh, we sort of have collected to some chapters together um, uh, to talk about some of the bands who sort of more explicitly participate in protests and demonstrations uh, on the front lines, so to speak. Um, but it should be said that not every honk band necessarily views themselves as a protest-oriented band. Um, uh, but, you know, all of the ones in this section sort of are more in that uh, explicitly protest-oriented type of honk band. Um, so we talk about, or, or these chapters rather, um, talk about bands like um, the Infernal Noise Brigade, which is um, no longer active, but which which served as a, um, as sort of a, an inspiration for many of the current uh, honk bands who participate in protests. Um, and then some of the other bands we talk about in this section are Rude Mechanical Orchestra from New York, um, who was inspired in part by Infernal Noise Brigade. Um, and then there's like groups such as the Rhythms of Resistance um, Samba groups um, that we talk about in, in here, as well as a, a handful of other bands that sort of more explicitly uh, frame their work as uh, being part of protest and um, and sort of use uh, use their sound and music as sort of a, an, a tactical element in um, attempting to create social change um, for a variety of social justice causes. So uh, some of the, some of the movements um, that that some of these honk bands participate in, um, like Ruby said, you know, Black Lives Matter figure rather prominently, um, you know, and other sort of social justice uh, causes that, that um, you know, that kind of address things like racial justice, gender equality, climate justice, workers' rights, um, and, and sort of these, you know, similar um, types of, of causes. Um, and these, these bands, these protest-oriented honk bands kind of participate throughout the year in various forms of street demonstrations, um, kind of addressing systematically induced precarity in all of its forms. So um, the tactics that they use sort of depend rather heavily on the type of action or protest it is. You know, uh, they there are large marches like the Women's March on, on Washington, um, as well as sort of smaller, more localized protests um, or demonstrations in front of city council or, um, you know, 
places like that. Um, and then, then also so these bands uh, use their music for you know, direct actions or flash mob style protests um, at the invitation or in conjunction with sort of local social justice groups or community organizers. Um, so uh, the, the, like I said, the strategies and musical choices that honk bands use in protests is rather dependent on the context of the action, as well as sort of how they think listeners are likely to respond. Um, and these, these chapters um, kind of go into more depth about some of the explicit tactics um, that they use. Sound and music is sort of seen as something which can disrupt uh, everyday apathy and confront hegemonic power. Um, and uh, it is seen as something which can kind of call attention to explicit causes or social justice groups. Um, honk bands are, you know, rather loud <laughs> and mobile and so uh, can more easily de direct attention um, in the space of protest. Um, and it is also seen as something which can call people to participate uh, in not just in sort of becoming aware of, a, of an issue, but mobilize them um, to become involved in some way. Uh, and, and music explicitly is seen as something which may, uh, you know, invite people to participate, uh, particularly because it helps sort of contribute um, sort of an aspect of joy and makes protest spaces sort of fun rather than um, kind of, you know, boring speechifying. And so, uh, the affective kind of emotional work that honk bands can do in the space of protest is an important theme um, that's addressed in some of these chapters. Um, and, and again, other, in the variety of strategies um, that are used uh, by honk bands in protest are things like chant support, where bands will, um, you know, either lead or amplify um, protest chants uh, in, in a variety of contexts, again, either to create these sort of joyful moments where people feel invited to participate, um, but also sometimes to create uh, feelings of shame or anger. Um, one of the chapters explicitly kind of talks about um, uh, strategies of sonic disobedience, which would be, you know, things like shame demos, which is what Rude Mechanical Orchestra uh, calls these type of protests where they're their sound is used as sort of an enhancement of um, um, crafting attention uh, to, to be directed at, um, you know, things that are uh, maybe not necessarily in view of the general public. And so creating shame in the people that are part of this um, to, you know, pick a side is one of the tactics that um, the Rude Mechanical Orchestra at least uses. Um, and then, uh, and then also sound is seen um, as something which can kind of create solidarity between different groups. And so my chapter kind of is, is dealing with um, the way that sound and music is used in uh, a particular demonstration outside of the immigration detention center in Boston as something um, that, you know, sound can sort of penetrate these political and physical boundaries um, in an effort to kind of uh, show solidarity with people on the other side of these boundaries, as well as create, um, you know, the feeling among the participants within the honk bands that are part of that demonstration, um, you know, to, 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 for people that might not always participate in protests, that demonstration is sort of meant to show people what it feels like to 
play in a protest. Um, and when you can see, you know, the, the folks in the immigration detention center and they can hear your music, um, it sort of is a very powerful kind of demonstration and um, is just, again, another sort of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sorry. <laughs> it's, a, it's another example of the ways that um, sound and music can sort of do emotional labor and create feelings of solidarity um, in situations where uh, things like hope are maybe not necessarily uh, very strongly felt. Um, so I don't, Andrew and Ruby may, <laughs> may uh, want to, to add, I feel like I'm rambling a bit here. <laughs> no, I just wanted, I did want to actually just uh, follow up on, I mean, your discussion of tactics. I think that this is one of the areas that honk bands are really innovative as musical projects. Uh, it's what really drove me kind of both experientially and intellectually to be really interested in honk uh, when I first encountered the Brass Liberation Orchestra supporting the Occupy Wall Street protests. Um, and I mean, most of what you will see at a honk festival is some kind of performance. Uh, you will, it, it might be uh, very collective, it might be very participatory, but sort of the aesthetic purpose of performance is generally the goal. But what honk bands do, uh, what some honk bands do outside of that space and through the year is to use some of those aesthetic strategies as tactics for crowd control. And that is something that I don't think musicians are used to thinking about uh, and what they what they use sound for. Um, so yeah, ch chant support um, and music is a kind of crowd control. I mean, I think the kind of affective power that music has to uh, overwhelm people can be used strategically in spaces of contention and protest. And that is what I think a lot of uh, bands have been innovatively developing and sharing now across borders globally um, to you know, find ways uh, to, to use this kind of ensemble that is based in power, right? Based in the military, based in moving people uh, for very subversive purposes. One of the tactics um, that has become more widespread during the pandemic uh, has been the use of percussion and chant support. Um, many of the groups because of, um, because of the research on uh, brass instruments in spreading COVID, um, there's some controversial research there. A lot of the bands have broken down to percussion outfits at this point, temporarily at least. And they're in part um, because percussion is very effective in providing chant support for bands uh, for, for protest rallies. Um, and this is something that we had been developing as a full as a full brass ensemble previously, um, because when we first started hooking up with demonstrations in a really organized way, we very often found ourselves working across purposes to folks within the political groups who were leading chants. Uh, we'd be playing songs, they would start a chant, um, either they interfered with our song or we interfered with their chants and it didn't, that didn't seem to be a very productive way to proceed, especially since our conception of why we were there was to support the political purpose um, of the rally, not simply to do a performance of our band as entertainment. Um, and so we started figuring out ways that we could work in tandem with the groups who were doing chant support. And we actually um, convened meetings with chant leaders um, where they 
educated us about the chance they won, the chance they were planning to use, and we educated them about how um, those chants could be incorporated into the music we play. And we've gotten to the point now, and a number of bands uh, all over the place have gotten to the point where um, we can really integrate, we can really wrap music around chants in a way that's very productive in that um, what we will do now is start to perform a song that we normally play from our repertoire and at, a, <clears throat> and at, a point, at an appointed time in conjunction with chant leaders from the movement we will drop out the whole section, reach the song to percussion where the chant leaders from the protest can chant over the percussive riffs that we're playing. Um, and when that chant is done, we resume the song where we left off. And so the entire song becomes a performance of our song that's totally in sync um, with the goals of the, of the movement that's happening. Um, and that's been working very effectively. Uh, one of the ways I've heard this described is kind of uh, making making the protesters feel like the, the star rather than the musicians feeling like the star. The, the idea of music as support rather than music as kind of object. I like that. And uh, we're already kind of on the next question a little bit. But, you know, thinking about all that stuff that y'all were just talking about tactics, what are some current examples that you've been seeing happening, you know, over the last... I guess, 12 months now in 2020, you know, for instance, have you seen any kind of responses within honk communities to the summer 2020 Black Lives Matter movement, for instance? Yeah. And we can go in the same order as before, Rebe, Aaron, Andrew. Um, summer 2020, yeah. I mean, in Somerville, we had been planning at the beginning of 2020, we had been planning for our normal in-person, in-your-face up close and personal festival. Um, and we were still like working through our list of which international bands to invite all the way. I mean, in May or June, we were still imagining um, that there might be a live festival in October. Um, and, you know, within a few months, the pandemic just killed that all, all, 22 festivals that we know of were canceled um, or had to be canceled. Um, and it was at that point that we started to develop the idea of what we are calling Honk United. Um, we decided what we wanted to see happen is for all of the festivals and in many ways the bands associated with the festivals, even if they come from somewhere else, to do a performance in their own locale on the same day. Um, and that idea also caught fire. Um, and so what we, what we initially envisioned as really a one day festival with everybody like contributing a song um, turned into eight full days of performance. Um, 70 bands from all seven continents participating. I mean, who knew there was a brass band in Antarctica? Um, but yes, there was, and they performed. Um, and it just turned into this remarkable thing um, where because of the pandemic, we were able to put together an operation where people learned about 
local political conditions on the ground in cities and countries all over the world in ways that never would have happened had we all proceeded with our normal, you know, live, in-your-face, but ephemeral performances. Um, and so this really had the effect of, of being able to see up close and personal a range of political issues and solutions to them, or at least the ways in which people are paying attention to them that are happening all over the world. Um, I can talk more about that, but let me stop there and leave some space. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a few. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of um, uh, of the summer, the summer 2020, um, you know, as Rebe was mentioning, uh, some of the honk protests that occurred for some of the Black Lives Matter um, marches and things like that, uh, you sort of transitioned from the instrumentation that was used in an effort not to... Um, endanger <laughs> endanger people who may be uh, nearer to the band. Um, I, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and there are actually no honk bands locally um, to speak of, but um, something that I did notice sort of from afar is sort of, which dovetails with Honk United in a way, is sort of the virtual efforts that some bands made um, or, uh, you know, where there was sort of more emphasis on creating um, video you know collective uh co-videos as people call them um and and then sometimes that happened in conjunction with like fundraisers and things like that so there were there have been a few bands who sort of have participated virtually in creating music videos um and then which were used in in, in sort of fundraising efforts for various different kinds of organizations um i i will say too that for some bands who's kind of more uh, political purpose is sometimes focused inwards a bit. Um, so for some of the uh, all women and non gender non-binary bands who one of their missions is sort of to create a space where um, where it's the members of the band can kind of focus on their own uh, individual expression and have a space to develop confidence in things like musical arrangement um, and stuff like that. This summer has also been kind of an opportunity to uh, to learn more about arranging, about using the technological tools um, of editing and things like that to create videos. Um, and it has been sort of, um, I don't know, this has been a moment where, where Honk has sort of become more technological in a way that it wasn't necessarily before. But again, you can also see the tension between um, the sort of ephemeral quality of honk performance and the strategies that are used in the space of in-person protest um, are not safe. Like, you know, the political power of assembly has become inverted in a way and that honk bands are still trying to get people to, to assemble apart. And so um, it's sort of interesting in that way. Um, but I think, yeah, this sort of, this virtual component has been part of it um, in some sense this summer. I, I watched um, the Black Lives Matter protests of the summer explode a little bit also from afar. Um, I had been living in the Bay Area, uh, which is definitely a center of um, most major protests that happen in, in the US. 
uh, and uh, I had had a baby this year, right when uh, COVID uh, started. And we, when we were realizing we were going to be quarantined indefinitely, ended up uh, uh, spending the summer uh, in smaller cities with family. Um, so, but what I saw from afar was that uh, the Black Lives Matter protest that when that kicked off, that was kind of the end of um, the quarantine to the strict level that people had been experiencing it. People went out and took risks. Um, and they, at first, they didn't, we didn't know how much COVID would spread outside, right? We now know that it's certainly less likely um, than, than indoors. But uh, protest crowds took risks. And some of these bands also did that. So uh, the Brass Liberation Orchestra, for example, that was when they, uh, the, the Bay Area protest band, that was when they went back um, to, uh, to playing, kind of with knowing that it was potentially a big risk. Um, other bands, I think, uh, have still basically not been functioning as normal. I'm no, almost no band is functioning as normal. But, um, but some bands, I think, took that moment to, to try new things um, and experiment with social, social distance playing. Um, and other bands uh, made their their messages more through uh, you know virtual media, as we were saying. Um, and I'm sure that some new musical honk related efforts kind of grew out of those spaces. I believe what I'm saying is factual, but I hope someone will fact check me. That a band uh, that in Philadelphia that was featured on on PBS was not. Uh, it was a, a brass band that went out and supported some of the uh, the festivals. Uh, the protest uh, was not affiliated with honk, but uh, but just took the idea of musically supporting, um, and then was featured on the Honk United Festival, like that that PBS um, little report about them. So uh, you know, I think it's it's been really uh, a diverse set of reactions. Um, I think bands have also been thinking about how are they you know dealing with anti-racism and inclusivity in their in their bands, Mission Delirium, for example, for the first time been thinking really uh, critically about do we need to apply affirmative action in auditions? We're an audition band. Uh, we don't just let uh, everyone in. Uh, do we need to be very um, strategic in how we build the band? Uh, otherwise, it's going to remain a white male cis dominated band. Um, so these are, these are new conversations for some bands that I think have been responding to the, to the moment. And I think also sort of uh, in conjunction with that, I, I think one of the strategies that um, is certainly very interesting for me that honk bands take in various forms of protest is sort of the ability to create new relationships and, and, um, and reach out to various different groups uh, of, of different sorts. And so I think because of this sort of uh, context of isolation that we find ourselves in now, that mission of, of creating new relationships such that new po political possibilities may then be possible um, has also kind of at least become more highlighted for me. And so um, even bands who didn't necessarily go out and participate in Black Lives Matter protests uh, participated in sort of other ways um, to try and bridge uh, relationships. So environmental encroachment, for example, went this summer and, and sort of socially distanced outside, played for a line of people waiting at a food bank to get food. Um, and, you know, sort of these, these other ways that, um, that 
punk bands can try to facilitate like new connections and relations was also something that um, was of note to me this summer. Um, it's it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that the PBS piece in Philly um, because that was that was one of the most moving supports for Black Lives Matter that I have seen in a long time. Um, and we contacted the folks who organized that demonstration immediately and asked them if uh, they were interested in, in, uh, in including their video in the Hawk United thing that we did. And they, they just gave us the video. Um, as soon as Hawk United was over, we got contacted by uh, Elaine Holton, a woman in Philly who plays in one of the drum lines, one of the, one of the all-female drum lines in Philly, and they are now starting a honk festival in Philly. So it's uh, number 23, I believe. <laughs> so it, it, it spreads like that. Um, so we have not only the COVID-19 virus, but the honk virus honk as well. Virus. A good kind of virus in that case. <laughs> Yeah, um, and speaking of Honk United, how was that? You know, all this virtual stuff going on. Um, we'll stick with the same order here, Rebe, Aaron, Andrew. You know, what were some of the pros and cons of this online platform? Well, we had no idea what to expect when we made that proposal. Um, and it just got, it got all consuming very quickly. I mean, we are still in the process in Boston of debriefing the whole thing, but it required um, putting together a, uh, a technological capability that we simply had never experienced the need for up until then, but um, live streaming on multiple platforms for eight days um, just required an incredible technical team. And in this case, it was a technical team that came from all over the world that operated horizontally without any real hierarchy. Um, it, was, it was a pretty amazing feat of skill. Um, and one of the things that is the tension there is, I think what we did in Honk United um, accomplished more in terms of expanding and strengthening and diversifying the honk movement than anything that 22 festivals could have done locally. I mean, honk just expanded exponentially as a result of uh, the Honk United venture. At the same time, the technical aspects of it were so all-consuming that it was very difficult to, to maintain any kind of a focus on what's still possible to do live. You know, Honk is essentially a live festival. Um, it's, it's not a video performance. Um, and, and it was very difficult for us to even think about things like, what's the effect of, of going virtual gonna have on the local communities that are expecting bands to march by the front of their house. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we provide for some semblance of that local connection while at the same time putting together this international extravaganza? And we developed a couple of, of things like we did a reverse porch fest. Uh, for people who don't know what Porch Fest is, it's usually 
bands play on people's for porches and crowds gather in the street to listen to them. We did the opposite. We marched, we, we, we chose a bunch of neighborhoods um, where we knew that they were well organized and people could get the word out. And the word went out that we would be marching down the street at a particular time and people could come out on their porches at a socially dis in a socially distanced way and listen to the band as it marched past their house. That was enormously appreciated by people um, in the neighborhoods where we were able to do that. Um, so there was those kinds of tensions. Um, and I, all the votes aren't in on, on how, well or, or how well we did all of that. We're still debriefing it. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be a very interesting discussion because um, the, the pandemic also provided ways for us to decentralize the local festival geographically as well. In other words, we have become, in our festival, we've become so embedded in Davis Square that it's almost unthinkable for us to do the festival somewhere else. Well, during the pandemic, it was impossible to do the massive festival that we usually do in Davis Square. And that paradoxically created the conditions under which we could do very small, socially distanced things in neighborhoods that we would not have had the capacity to go into if we had been doing our whole live festival. So we were able to do like uh, a, uh, a small masked socially distanced demonstration in support of black lives and black education and black businesses um, in Nubian Square in Roxbury, which is a heart of the black community in Boston. Um, and that would have been difficult to do had we been producing also our normal um, festival in Davis Square. So there are some interesting trade-offs that, that came and on balance, um, I think this has been an enormously beneficial experience in terms of, of strengthening this community um, and really giving this community an understanding of, of what the political situation is like worldwide. Um, yeah, and I think that's something that, um, you know, that stood out to me as well as just sort of that while the kind of ephemeral um, in-person live quality of, of what honk normally is with the, the, the great energy that it sort of brings to um, various different kinds of social justice movements um, or, or just to even neighborhoods and communities. Um, it's still there, but it was like, you know, different on, in the virtual platform. Um, and it was, uh, again, like this idea of, of, um, of a honk festival as something where, you know, people come and assemble together in person, which results in sort of these uh, social and political results um, happened uh, in a virtual space. So there was still like this really exciting element of everybody in their own homes tuning in, so to speak, to the Honk United broadcast and being able to kind of hang out live with each other in, in the chat sections of the website um, and sort of still have that kind of uh, interaction with people um, in a way that they may have in an in, in-person honk festival as well. Um, in each honk festival in each different place, you still have 
bands coming from around the country and around the world. And it's sort of also like this really wonderful um, reunion in a ways, uh, in a way, and for, for in-person festivals. And, and that element was still sort of very present, I think, um, in the virtual festival as well, uh, be, because of the way that, you know, there were sort of set times where it was, it went live every night and was broadcast. Um, and then, and in a lot of ways, I think for, for people who don't have the ability to travel to every single different Hong festival in every city and every country who may not know a lot of the Brazilian bands who may not know any of the Australian bands, you know, or, or any of the new bands who have not yet had the, uh, the, uh, you know, the ability to come to a festival in the U S um, this sort of self uh, awareness within the community of how truly transnational honk is and has become uh, sort of was, was able to be, um, you know, become, uh, you know, that was something that people were able to sort of notice more, I think, in, in having everything in this virtual mediated uh, platform, um, you know, and then there were people from Japan sort of in the chat, they were like, oh, wow, we didn't know that there was a band <laughs> that was part of Honk because we hadn't had the opportunity to go to the festival that happened on the West Coast where that band actually came, you know, and so um, I think sort of collapsing uh, space and time and sort of this virtual platform was was a very um, interesting thing, although it was different, you know, than the in-person event, but I think also sort of created these possibilities that may not have been able to be created in an in-person festival. Yeah. Honk uh, United represents uh, adaptation of an organism and the response to a new constraint of circumstances. I mean, Honk did not disappear. It grew in new ways because uh, what Honk is, is uh, live public, uh, mass crowds, uh, all things that are impossible. Um, and so the idea that Honk would adapt to a virtual uh, medium uh, is not, was not a given, right? Uh, and, uh, but, and had certainly many limitations, but also many benefits. I think it represents uh, how the pandemic has taken so much from us, but it's also forced us to be creative and imagine new possibilities and new ways of interacting uh, that, uh, give us new things that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Um, and in this case, I think it's the opportunity for the diverse movements who are affiliated and who came to be affiliated as part of this process uh, with the festival to represent themselves to one another and to represent the movement uh, to itself. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the way that many of uh, these festivals spread is a kind of word of mouth where one band gets invited, they have an ex experience that uh, is really impactful, they want to start it in their own uh, place, but it's really kind of this um, experiential-based uh, way of, of finding things and, and created this very diffuse movement. So it was an opportunity for that diffuse movement to unite itself. Um, and what, whatever that means, um, at least to share that platform. Um, and some of the ways that, some of the things that were new that were able to happen were bands would uh, perform themselves, perform uh, through co-videos, which we mentioned. Uh, so people recording themselves isolated individually as part of a, a broader track. Um, there were uh, there were opportunities for storytelling, for bands to uh, give a documentary that had been made about them or they had made um, 
interviews about the bands. There, um, there were a, really a broad variety of, of, of manifestations. One thing that has always kind of been left to the sideline within the festivals has been uh, workshops. Uh, often they're on another day, they're not on the weekends, they're not the, you know, they're not what people, what most people will come to the festival for. Um, but workshops and panels that we were able to have a whole day uh, devoted to and to have transnational conversations that would have never happened otherwise. And we actually were able to gather about half of the authors for the book um, and have a book panel um, with them where they talked about their, their chapters and the way they saw the movement. Um, so, so yeah, it, it just offered things that would have never been uh, possible otherwise. Um, one of the questions we asked in that panel was what, do, what kind of affordances do you see uh, with, with this kind of virtual festival? And one person also mentioned, uh, responded very, very, in a way that I think we all feel, uh, it, you know, there's lots of great things we could do, but is watching brass bands on TV as good as playing or experiencing them in a real person? No, it's, it's not. It's, it's something fundamentally different and it represents a, a lack that we had this year, right? Um, but I think that it seems like this kind of way of interacting um, could be really useful in the future, even as we come up to what is the real heart of, of, um, of the movement, which is playing uh, in person. Um, when that comes back, I think that this will have given new ways of interacting and networking that will certainly grow the movement in ways that were otherwise impossible. Great. And of course, there's another honk platform that we have to talk about, your book's companion site, honkrenaissance.net. So continuing with all the virtual today, um, what are some of your goals for that site? You know, it seems like kind of like what y'all were already getting at. It's a great platform for more connected, more public facing, you know, content about honk. Uh, Andrew, if you want to take this one. Sure. I mean, anyone who's interested specifically in the book, um, wants to know more about the book, uh, should visit it. It's honkrenaissance.net. Um, and we created that space uh, as a companion website uh, that many academic books have, right, to be able to showcase some of the materials that um, uh, are referenced in the book. Um, so uh, it has that function. But we also want to use it as a space to uh, put things that we weren't able to put in the book uh, and things that are coming out after um, uh, writing or other forms of, um, of engagement and representation of the movement. Um, we have a section there for, for more writing of, uh, of some chapters that we couldn't put in the book, not because they weren't good enough, but because they were already represented in some way. Um, we didn't want to have three chapters about the rude mechanical orchestra, so there's a very good for example, a very good uh, chapter there um, about about that band. So uh, we hope to continue to grow that um, as many projects do. We made it and it exists and uh, we have maybe not as been focusing on it as much as we did when we made it now, but we would very much invite anyone who uh, wants to contribute some uh, kind of uh, documentation to that space. Cool. Well, we will look forward to seeing where that goes, the website, and whatever 2021 will bring for all these festive spaces. My gosh. 
Um, speaking of future things, I have a question for the three of you. What other projects are all of you working on now? Um, we'll go in the usual order. Reby, Aaron, and Andrew. You're muted. I was muted. Sorry. <clears throat> the short answer is raising money for Georgia. <clears throat> Excellent. Um, yeah, that's a good one, maybe. <laughs> um, I am currently, uh, I am finishing up um, the remainder of my dissertation. Uh, so graduation is kind of my uh, main focus at this point. Uh, so close. <laughs> um, but then also um, sort of with this, this sort of uh, honk united having just happened, Andrew and Ruby and I are also sort of um, starting to think about possibly putting together an article that kind of reflects on um, on Honk United and uh, and seeing what that brings in terms of, of publishing opportunities. We're, we're doing that. I'm uh, also trying to uh, turn the dissertation, which was about the honk scene in Brazil, into a book. And I just want to say that uh, the, honk, the Brazilian honk scene just represents a kind of manifestation of what I think the Americans were dreaming of a little bit on steroids. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got there, Honk had not even come uh, as a, there was not a Honk festival yet in 2013 when I started my research there. But there had been uh, this balloon, ballooning of um, street carnival bands. So this is not the big spectacleized samba schools, which are also amazing, um, but informal events that had happened in the streets. And a lot of Brazilians were going back to, um, to the brass band format that had traditionally been part of a carnival, but they were starting to change it um, and starting to play really diverse repertoires, starting to play in multi-level ways. The sort of local concept that they use is just basically an expandable band where you have maybe a nucleus of people put it together and then people just kind of join on top. Uh, and uh, bands were also playing in uh, major protests that were happening in Brazil. So it just all really kind of like the, what, what honk was there, or what that community there called neofonfohismo or new brass bandism, uh, is how tra I translate it, was kind of manifesting itself um, and then uh, grabbed onto the, the honk um, idea. So, uh, and just to, to give you a sense of like the enormity of it, uh, there's a band called Orquesta Voladora, uh, which is about a 10 to 15 person professional band. They organize a bloco that can be about 400 people uh, that plays for about 100,000 people. And that's not the biggest kind of carnivalesque manifestation in Rio, but it is a big one. Um, and so really the, the mass level of some of these ideas are influencing one of the biggest parties uh, in the world. As Honk has come to Brazil, it's really transformed the local carnival. Right? Bra Brazilian carnival is like, is world famous and Honk has had an impact in that. I think it's really kind of uh, an amazing development. So that book is hopefully coming out um, next year. I'm hoping to continue to, yeah, we're hoping to put together this Honk United article and uh, I'm sure there's lots of other things in the future. Excellent. I will look forward to seeing what happens with Georgia dissertation and books galore with the three of you. Um, thank you all so much for joining us uh, here on New Books and Celebration Studies. It was a pleasure talking with you. I got you. Thanks so Thanks. much, Emily. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
And of course, we couldn't have this without you listeners. We appreciate you listeners as well. Um, and as a recap, this is the end of an interview with Rebe Garofalo, Aaron Allen, and Andrew Snyder about the edited volume, Honk, a street band renaissance of music and activism, published by Rutledge in 2020. This is Emily Allen here on New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series on the New Books Network. Thank you.